Julie, welcome to Saltier Politics this week. How are you doing? It's been a little crazy here at the Roginsky, um household. My dad, um, who's in his late 70s and is still working for reasons that are a mystery to uh, everybody else in our family. He's one of those people that I think if he doesn't work, doesn't know what to do with himself. And we've been kind of begging him to cut it out <laughs> and retire. <laughs> but that's something he's not inclined to do. He was... Uh, climbing a ladder at work. Let me stress again, he's in his late 70s, although he's in pretty good shape. My mother got a phone call um, from his boss, uh, I guess, hours later. He'd been transported first to one hospital and then to a much better, I don't know, better, but but a hospital that is more equipped to deal with people who are in really bad shape. Um, that's not very close to their house, but nevertheless, a very good hospital. It's pretty scary. I went to go see him. He's Mercifully, he's alive. Mercifully, there seems to be no internal damage. He, I've never seen anybody look this way. By the way, he'd be killing me for even telling the story publicly, but um, he's in no shape to listen to this podcast, so I'm, I'm, I'm willing to share it. Um, crazy. I went to go see him. He has a broken shoulder, a broken arm, a broken nose. His oh my God. Um, I have never seen him. Mean, he looks like he went 20 rounds with Sonny Liston in the rink. Both of his eyes are swollen shut. Um, uh, he just does not look... Like he looks like he's been beaten to a pulp. Um, so it's pretty sad and scary for, for all of us here. Um, my little guy who's very, very close to him um, was obviously very concerned about his grandpa. And uh, so we're hanging in there day by day. But um, luckily, he's in a very good hospital and getting excellent care. No, what do the doctors say the recovery process would be like? You know, it's too soon to tell. He's there for the long haul. He had surgery on his shoulder yesterday, which seemed to go well. He's going to have to have several more surgeries to even just fix the broken bones. I'm concerned because obviously when you get to a certain age, anesthesia is not so great for you. Mm -hmm. What I'm worried about is, of course, knowing him when he recovers eventually. Um, he'll probably want to go back to work. <laughs> oh, no. I just don't think that's something you should be doing. He also has a physically demanding job. It's not a desk job. He had to yeah. fall from pretty high off the ladder. For that's... Oh, my God. I don't even understand how high this ladder must have been. That's scary as heck. Okay, yeah. so, well, one of the things I did do, because you suggested or to talk about the many saints of Newark. Oh, yes. Did you see it? I did, and I'm not happy about it. I watched the whole thing because I knew we were going to talk about it. I would have stopped it at the very beginning. I just thought the Italians looked so bad and so stupid at, at the really? opening. Yeah. But did you think that about the original Sopranos? No, because I thought there was, even though they did dumb things, there was a slyness and a street smartness about it. Like, I didn't think they were stupid people. Like, I never thought Tony was stupid. Right. I thought these guys were portrayed as just stupid. Interesting. Yeah. I, 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 my dad actually, like, I talked to him about it. He watched it. And he's like, I, he, he, he was offended. He's like, I was offended by this portrayal because and my dad grew up really? in Providence. Yeah. And he's like, you, having, you know, lived around like mobsters and stuff. And he's like, I never thought they were this stupid or I never got that feeling that they were stupid. That's interesting. Um, you know, when the original Sopranos came out, there were politicians of Italian descent in North Jersey where this was all taking place who really were offended about the stereotyping of Italians. Um, and, and just the stereotype of them obviously being mobbed up and, and yada, yada. And I, I, you know, I'm not Italian, so it's hard for me to obviously speak about this from a personal standpoint. But I, I didn't think that, I mean, I think it was a, a show about 
the mafia, right? So, mm-hmm. and about the Italian mob. So I don't, I didn't think it was stereotyping all Italians. I just thought it was much like the Godfather focused on a crime family. So, so did, so did the Sopranos. I will say that um, I, my, my problem with, with the many scenes of New York was I just thought, first of all, there were like a bunch of really, there were so many storylines and none of them were well too developed. Too much. Way too much happening. I agree. And not, yeah, and they weren't well developed. Like The Godfather had a bunch of different storylines happening, but they were much better developed. The characters were much better developed. I will say, I think Michael Gandolfini, James Gandolfini's son, was amazing. And I'm he not was just the saying, highlight. Yeah, I'm not just saying that because of his dad. I think he's incredibly talented. I think there was such a, a poignancy to him. Even um, Vera is a familia. I don't even know how to pronounce her last name, who I think is an excellent actress. There's so much you could do with Livia Soprano, and I just based on what we know about her from the show. And I didn't think she really came across well. I thought Johnny Boy Soprano, Tony's dad, I thought in in the flashbacks in the Sopranos TV series was much more developed in the few minutes that he had in each of those um, flashbacks than he was throughout this whole show. I didn't think that... Dickie Maltesanti was a particularly a, a well-developed character. I think. Oh, on the I page. didn't think he was believable. Yeah, I, I think on the At page they were well-developed, but he didn't seem like he had that much conflict. I, I don't understand why Ray Liotta's... We need to talk about that. Ray Liotta, I thought he had his heyday, but um, I wrote this down. I, I thought his performance was underwhelming, and I thought I didn't think it was believable that Dickie was going to this his brother kind of as the priest character as his like, I just, I found it way too unbelievable. And I thought I didn't, I didn't find his role compelling at all. And for such an amazing actor, I was completely underwhelmed. Yeah. And then what uh, I didn't understand why his wife, who I guess then became the Guman um, for, for Dickie Maltesanti, um, why she slept with Odom's character like was it to tick him off there's there's a whole racial dimension to it that I thought kind of went unexplored I thought and I also really just thought the whole race relation thing it just like hit the surface and it was half-assed so you didn't even get into it like you said too many things happening so you saw you know the racial stuff happening but you didn't dig in it was like the it was like an episode one where you need way more episodes yeah, and it's interesting because the the New York riots, um, which if you are from New Jersey as I am, still are a huge, huge, huge thing that people who lived through them talk about. I mean, it was really an incredibly um, earth shattering event, and led to a complete realignment politically, socially, um, of of uh, New Jersey. I mean, you went from having again, a white Italian controlled, uh, New York is the biggest city in New Jersey, mayor government to now suddenly having African-Americans control New York. There was a tremendous amount of white flight from New York, um, especially of the kind that the Sopranos would be a part of, right? Mm-hmm. Like they would be exactly the kind of family that would, um, that would uh, leave New York after those riots. And all of that went unaddressed. I mean, there's a whole there are towns all around Newark that are settled by exactly the demographics of um, Italian by Italian Americans whose families left wards in Newark during and after the Newark riots, never to return. Um, 
I mean, I really, and, and it's such a massive cultural shift that I thought it was a, you had, the, if you were going to use the New York riots as the backdrop to this period in time, why that went unaddressed, I thought the racial dimension kind of went unaddressed um, because it was so much more important and dramatic than a sh the show portrayed, uh, which is weird. Usually shows kind of go overboard with the drama. In this case, I thought they kind of under-dramatized what really did happen, which is a huge, huge, huge shift. Um, Agreed. I thought how they covered it at that point, they just shouldn't have even, they either needed to go way more in or just like not add those extra storylines. Like, so you had this like incident where like, okay, there was a bunch of rioting, but why there was rioting? I mean, look, the spark, <laughs> it's, it's like the Arab Spring, right? The spark for the Arab Spring was a guy in Tunisia self-emulating because of, you know, his rights were repressed and that kicked off this whole Arab Spring across the Middle East, right? But that's not really, it's not really because some guy self-emulated himself. It's because of, of factors that were building up much longer and for, for a longer period of time than that. Same thing here, right? It, yes, the New York riots began because uh, an African-American taxi driver got pulled out and, and beaten to a pulp. I, I'm not sure if he died. He might have even been beaten to death. I can't remember. But the point is that was the spark that, that lit the riots. But not really, right? I mean, that was just the right. incident. That led to it. Um, but there was just so much cultural strife between and just oppression of, of African-Americans in, in, you know, in that time period by the very same people <laughs> the Sopranos represent. Um, and not just them, but I mean, by, by white voters, you know, across the board, not not necessarily just. And if you also if you look at Essex County, which is where um, Newark is. In New Jersey, uh, it's a very interesting dynamic, and The Sopranos touched on it on, in the TV series, where you have very wealthy towns like North Caldwell, for example, which is where Tony and Carmela lived, which are you know up the hill from Newark, which continues to be a town uh, or a city that that keeps. Yeah, it's had somewhat of a renaissance, I think, first under Cory Booker, um, even before Cory Booker. It certainly has had somewhat of a renaissance over the last 20 years, but nevertheless still very much is, is a city that's struggling compared to the immense wealth that surrounds Essex Canyon, the town of Montclair, which people know about because it's basically, you know, uh, one of the, it's almost like the fifth borough, the sixth borough of New York to some extent is in Essex County right up the road from, from Newark. So you have immense, I mean, when I say immense wealth, I mean, really just, just immense wealth um, next to this incredible poverty. And of course it's racially segregated intentionally or not, but it is. All of that, I don't think, began under the New York riots, but certainly was exacerbated by the New York riots. And, and there's so much more to say about that, that if you're going to set this in the era of the New York riots, you have to address it. You can't just have a bunch of people throwing Molotov cocktails and setting cars on fire without explaining the immense significance of what this meant, both to people like the Sopranos and the Maltesantes and to the people um, who would have represented whose character's name I can't remember, but, but to the African-American community, which to this day still very much has to live with the consequences of those of that era in Newark. So that I thought was just, uh, there was a lot going on and not enough all at the same time. The one thing I did think it did capture was one of the things that I think was attractive about Tony Soprano, even though he was 
physically an unattractive guy was the way that he was vulnerable, even though he was badass. And yeah. I thought young Tony really showed that vulnerability, even while talking to the guidance yeah. counselor, because that I think is what made an older Tony Soprano sexy, like to attractive women, not only the power, but the way he could open up and be vulnerable, which I thought oh. was super unique. And I'm glad, again, the only savior of this film was young Tony Soprano. I think they didn't do an origin story on Tony Soprano because they didn't delve enough into the origin story and they didn't do a Dickie Maltesanti story, right? Like there's a story to be told about Christopher's father who who kind of loomed over the Sopranos without talking about, without ever appearing in the Sopranos, even in flashback, I don't think. So you had to really choose one or the other, but by choosing both, they didn't really um, right. delve enough either. And there, was a, and there was a lot of stunt casting. Look, Ray Liotta was a stunt cast because of, you know, Goodfellas. I thought that... Um, casting Connie from The Godfather as the guidance counselor. That was really good. First of all, when she said that Tony remembered that his mother used to snuggle up in bed with him and read to him, was seems like out of left field. I mean, that's nothing that we ever saw any part of uh, Livia Soprano do or you think that she would do. So that was kind of a, you know, if she would do that, what changed to have her not do that anymore? Janice, who was such a great character in The Sopranos, I think wasn't as developed there as right. she was even in flashbacks as, as a little girl on the show so i don't know i mean I, i'm all for more sopranos prequels i don't know that this was the prequel they, they should have broken this prequel up into three different prequels right yeah just done that well i did like corrado killing dicky i thought that tracked in the theme of the sopranos you disrespect me i'll kill you yeah, I guess. Yes, that Uncle Junior was this guy that kind of set Tony off on this whole path. And then again, also, like, they kind of beat you over the head a little bit too too much with Tony meeting, supposed to meet Dickie, who's, a, who's dead, at the site of the last scene of The Sopranos, where Tony may or may not be dead as well. Like, that was a little too cute and clever, I thought. By the way, that place is fantastic if anybody's ever in Essex County. Go to that ice cream parlor. It's really good. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Um, I mean, all these places are real. Satrial's is not real, but um, but that ice cream parlor is definitely real. Yeah, a lot of those places are real. Oh, if there's one more point. For my dad, the high point for him, he was like, when um, Dickie brought the Schwoyadel to uh, Ray Liotta in jail, my dad was like, it was like, kill the brother, bring him the Schwoyadel, leave the body, take the cannoli. That was oh, like. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Yeah, I just thought it was too, too, I don't know. Yeah. Too much, too much. So, um, but I do think this marks the first time you and I agree on some, on a movie. Yeah. On a because show. Because typically you have horrible taste in TV shows, as we all have established. <laughs> I mean, the next one you need to watch is Squid Game. <laughs> yeah, I'm not watching Squid Game. I actually was warned about Squid Game by some parents at my son's soccer tournament this weekend and apparently squid game is like the worst thing on earth he said so i'm not watching squid game i don't I know what to call it that it's pretty much all these people who are in financial straits get asked to do this game and they end up being six kids games like red light green light but if you lose you get shot and die so like you lose the the stakes are you lose the game you die so each what? round there's less and less people but the the prize money gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, it's it's wow. interesting. 
Why would I watch this? All of this sounds awful. <laughs> Just the way you're describing it. No, I'm not watching. It is this. now the most watched show in the history of Netflix. Is that right? It's More true. Than, really? More, yeah, anything. It's now the number one stream Netflix show. Well, as you remember, the second most streamed Netflix show I also did not like. It's Shonda Rhimes one. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, Bridgerton. Bridgerton. Yeah. Which, did you like that? Uh, I thought it was okay. Like, it was nice when it hit during the pandemic. You're like, okay, this is this is the kind of content I could be okay with. No. No? No. Okay. okay. Well, all right. So switching gears a little bit, I thought it would be interesting to kind of ask you, what kind of politics makes you salty? We always ask what makes us salty, but like, are there certain gender politics, class politics, age po- all of them can make you salty. But is there something like right now that's really particularly making you salty? I'm glad you asked that question. I just had this discussion with somebody today. People who are constantly talking about DEI, but then doing things that are contrary to the mission. So I'll give you a great example. Thank you for asking. Because at Lift Our Voices, we really focus on this quite a bit. Forced arbitration, which is a complicated issue. It's actually not complicated, but people don't understand it, which basically means that if you get racially discriminated against or gender discrimination or harassed or anything else, by 2024, 80% of non-union workers will be bound by forced arbitration, which means that you cannot sue. You have to go into a private secret chamber where um, 98% of the time, People don't even bring claims because they know that 98% of that time, they will get no compensation at all. These statistics are jarring, too, because you're set up to lose. I'll give you more statistics. The people most bound by forced arbitration are African-American voters. Not voters, excuse me, African-American workers. Almost 60%. I think it's something like 59.4%. Next up, as you could imagine, are women. Guess who's least affected by this? White guys. Um, and so you have all of these companies who are setting up, thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement and thanks to the Me Too movement, all of these diversity and inclusion departments and, and HR and, and we're, you know, we're all about diversity and inclusion. And every time you see them advertising, if you noticed every single ad on TV right now is biracial couples. And so they're really publicly trying to align themselves to these great civil rights movements, except they are using the very mechanisms that have oppressed African-American workers, Latino workers, and women for years and continue to increase at a rapid pace. 2% of people in 1991 were bound by forced arbitration. By 2024, it's going to be more than 80% of non-union workers. These are these are truly jarring numbers because again that number tells you the worker is set up to lose especially oh, no. the it's worker who is not the white male. Oh my god, it's awful. Awful awful awful. And so that's really what's irritating me because I spend an inordinate amount of time of my uh, of my day on the phone with companies that talk consistently about diversity and inclusion and how you know they're 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 putting women in positions of influence or they're putting African-Americans in positions of influence. And the reality is, of course, they're not. They're not because they're setting these very people up to fail as long as they have things like forced arbitration in place. Um, And so the politics of what they say and what they do are tremendously out of alignment. And that's really what irritates me. And they're going to be forced to change this through legislation. 
sooner rather than later. Um, there are some companies like Uber and Apple and Google and others that have done the right thing and just gotten rid of forced arbitration for their workers. So I think that's that's trending very much in the right direction when major companies like that change, others tend to follow, but not enough and not quickly enough. Look, ultimately, they're going to have to understand that they will be exposed by their own workers who are going to say, why are we banned by these arbitration clauses once they're aware of what that really means um, when you're talking about DEI? And yet you're driving us out because when understand what happens when you are separated from your company after you go through arbitration, you're, it's usually with an NDA that you have to sign, even if you don't get a penny for it, because that's one way to get severance or one way to get a recommendation. I mean, they could make you sign as part of a separation agreement, an NDA. You can never tell. That what that means is when you go apply for your next job and somebody says, hey, Emily, you worked at company X for 30 years. Why'd you leave? You have to say, oh, you know what? I can't tell you. Can't talk about that. Well, who's going to hire you? You sound like you did something wrong. You sound like you did something sketchy. No surprise. The vast majority of these women or African-American workers or Latino workers never work in their chosen field again. How interesting, too, because you're working, say, it was a media company for me. It's like my career is media. So therefore, me getting another job in media becomes nearly impossible because these jobs hinge on who you know, recommendations. Therefore, you can't get that and you're kind of shit out of luck. Oh, I mean, listen, I'll say this. I did not have an arbitration clause in my contract at Fox, but uh, almost everybody else I know who who. who as in the situation did, where are they now? They're not working in media. I mean, I can list off women who brought complaints against Bill O'Reilly, who's still making a ton of money (laughs) in media. And none of these women are working in their chosen field again. And my question is, did they lose their talent suddenly? Like, did they go from being anchors who were getting great, great ratings to suddenly not working in their chosen fields again for a reason? Is it because of them or is it because of the system has been set up that they have been driven? And by the way, you, you mentioned media company. This this affects every everybody. And in fact, the people who are most affected by forced arbitration clauses are people who make $13 or less an hour. The poorer you are, the more you're affected. If you're a person of color or a woman, you're more affected. So it's no surprise the people who are most disenfranchised in society to begin with also have the deck stacked against them professionally the most at work. The more you've learned about this, is it because it has to be both, you know, okay, this is why you're doing what you're doing, but then also doesn't it, it would just get me so angry too. Cause the, again, what you're telling me, these, these numbers are alarming. Well, you know, what's interesting is that um, most people aren't aware they don't know what's in their contract. Right, they don't even know. I didn't know what was in my contract, honestly, until I started paying attention. I did not know. I always say I'm bound by two NDAs, for example, right? One is as a result of my settlement with Fox, and one is as a result of my consulting contract with Governor Murphy of New Jersey. When I signed that contract with Governor Murphy, I read through it. I saw it was a confidentiality provision. I assumed it was a confidentiality provision. That meant that I couldn't discuss proprietary campaign information like polling or research or things like that, which, of course, first of all, I don't need a contract not to do. But secondly, 
Of course, that should be proprietary. Of course, that should be bound by an NDA. But it turned out it was bound. It was a lot more than that. In fact, it was so onerous that I couldn't even legally tell you that I had an NDA until I was finally released from that NDA. That's how onerous it was. I couldn't talk about anything that I saw or witnessed or was a part of at any time whatsoever. Taken to its logical conclusion, I couldn't legally tell you that I even consulted for him, despite the fact that, of course, my my name was all over campaign finance disclosure reports and 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 um, in the media and whatever else. So um, I didn't read my contract carefully. Everybody else I know who signed that contract did not understand what they were signing. So a lot of what I'm talking about and what we're talking about is education. I mean, most people don't know, and I can right. guarantee you, um, I don't know. Did you really read very carefully the contract that you signed at your new job when you went there? Probably not. Did you have a lawyer review it? Probably well, and not. And it's like too, when you get offered a job, you have this X amount of time to say yes or no. If you really need this job, want this job, how hard back, maybe you highlight that line, but are they going to change it? Well, it's not even that, right? Imagine if you're a 22 year old woman who is suddenly got her dream job working for her dream company, whatever that may be, right? She's negotiated her salary. Everything is great. She's so excited in that contract is buried in arbitration provision or an, or confidentiality provision that's really broad, not about proprietary information, but about everything. And by the way, this is where most NGs come into play. It's not as a result of settlement. It's a result of getting the job. Do you really have the wherewithal at that point as your first job to say, yeah, I, I'm not going to take this unless you take this clause out? Of course not, because there's 100 other people standing behind you who will take that job if you don't. And it's your dream job and you shouldn't have to, right? Mm -hmm. Give it up. So the onus really shouldn't be on you, Emily, or me, Julie, or any individual person not to sign this contract. The onus should be on the company not to force people into those kinds of contracts. Because the ultimate reality is that when people go through arbitration or uh, and they leave the company, which they typically almost always do as a result of going through this process, they can't discuss any of this with anybody. And the predator is the one who's protected because they're not able to warn anybody else about it. They're the ones that lose their jobs. They're the ones that lose their careers. A lot of these come with something called a no rehire provision, which means that, which really, when I tell people about this, they go insane. It means that let's say you accuse somebody, an executive at a big prominent company of sexual harassment, and you, as a result of that, are forced to then leave the company as part of a settlement because there's no way that you're going to get your uh, contract re-upped or anything else. Um, when you do, a lot of these places have something called a no rehire provision, which means that you, the person who did nothing wrong other than raise your hand and say, hey, I don't want to be harassed or racially discriminated against or whatever it might be, uh, you're not allowed to apply for that job or any of its affiliates ever again. Oh my they're, gosh. Yeah, they're yeah. called no rehire provisions. What did you do wrong to be precluded from ever applying for a job? First of all, why should you lose your job in the first place? But second, why should you be forever, forever precluded from applying for a job with that company again? Meanwhile, the person who's harassing you, because you're not allowed to ever talk about it, especially if you go through arbitration, keeps working and keeps getting ever increasing. Or gets, right. Or gets this massive windfall. Have you seen The Morning Show, by the way? Are you, I have not seen The Morning Show. I heard it's pretty true to life. I think you'd really uh, like it. Yeah, I'm sure I would. Because it brings up a lot of these NDA issues. But sure. I think this is really important, too, I guess, like getting the word out. Because even, you know, as the Black Lives Matter movement happened, it's like, what do you say if you're pulled over by police? And, and those that kind of vernacular was dispersed and spread out. So when people are pulled over by police, they at least know their rights. Like people don't know their rights about this issue. People aren't aware of what having an arbitration provision or a really broad confidentiality provision in their contract means, first and foremost. A lot of people are just not aware. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of what we're doing is just awareness. Um, and second, even if they are aware, they really can't talk to you about it. So a lot of these confidentiality provisions slash NDAs are so onerous that they can't, you can't tell somebody that you have an NDA. I mean, that's crazy. So if I say to you, Hey, Emily, I'm thinking about applying for a job at the company where you work. Tell me about your boss. You legally cannot tell me that your boss is harassing you every day, even if he's doing it to you every day. That's crazy. And so the cycle just continues because now you're putting your friend right in, uh, into the line of fire. Of course. Of course. More importantly, if you speak up, you'll be the one penalized. It's crazy. I mean, it's crazy that in the 21st century, this is still legal. Now, I will say the good news is there are some states that have just eradicated these kinds of broad NDAs. Uh, New Jersey was the first. California just did, which is fantastic because California is so huge. It's one-sixth of the economy, obviously, or whatever the number is. Um, So uh, it's tremendous. I mean, you know, if you're you're based in, in Hollywood or you're based in Silicon Valley now, you can't do that. You can't do what Harvey Weinstein did to all these women, which is combine them by to NDAs to such an extent, even as a result of settlement or as a result of employment, where they can't talk about this stuff ever again. That's massive. Uh, what What are the next states that? I mean, obviously, we want all fifty states, but what are what are the next? I guess pieces of legislation that you and Lift Our Voices are looking at. Well, it's interesting. In Massachusetts, which everybody thinks is a very progressive state, there's a um, we just testified at a hearing. Up in, up in Massachusetts, I want to say that maybe a month or so ago, there's a great state senator named Diana DiZolio who is pushing NDA, an NDA ban, couldn't get anywhere. So really narrowed it down where she said, now, if you care about taxpayers, you're really going to be outraged about this. If you are, the only thing this legislation asks for is if you are settling sexual harassment complaints with taxpayer dollars, right? So if you're a mayor and you're sexually harassed, I don't know, somebody in the public works department and that woman sued and she's mm-hmm. getting a settlement. You can't attach an NDA to that settlement because the taxpayers should know what they're paying for, right? It's coming out of their pocket because this is being settled with taxpayer dollars. And even there, that bill has, has they haven't moved it. Even that's too much. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. It's crazy. New York state, even after all the Cuomo stuff, does not have the NDA ban on this kind of stuff that they should. New York really should follow in California's footsteps, but has not. In New Jersey's footsteps, but has not. To this extent, they have somewhat of an NDA ban, but only, you know, there's so many loopholes attached to it that it might as well be toothless. So um, what what can audience member listening at home or someone like me do who is just, you know, an employee? And well, what, what all, advice would you get? I would, I would, I would really urge everybody to take a look at their contracts just to know what they're doing. Two, um, I think it's very important for people to understand that they should organize. I mean, the Google walkout, which everybody forgets, began because of this, because of arbitration. Okay. Uh, started by one woman. And that's something that um, people need to understand. But I also appreciate why one person might be afraid to, to rock the boat. Um, you know, you should organize your workplace to make sure that there's more of you. And, and, and lobby your legislature to change the laws on this. On arbitration, it has to be done through the federal government. So I strongly urge there's a piece of legislation that Lift Our Voices is really um, behind. That's co-sponsored, ironically enough, talk about strange bedfellows by Lindsey Graham and Kirsten Gillibrand in the Senate that would ban forced arbitration for sexual harassment and assault. 
um, I would strongly urge people to contact their representatives to support it. On NDAs, that could be addressed at the state level. Arbitration cannot because of the Federal Arbitration Act. It's preempted by federal law, but uh, it has to be addressed federally. But but on NDAs, if you live in if you live in Massachusetts, definitely contact your governor, your legislature, Charlie Baker, your governor, or your, your state legislators. But, I mean, and also that's too, it's, it's again, like you said so many times, it's bipartisan. Lindsey Graham and Kristen Gillibrand, like polar opposites. Well, but you know, this is what people have to understand. This is not a partisan issue. Right. Because there have been people who have abused NDAs. I'll give you a great example. Phil Murphy, Democrat of New Jersey, puts himself out as a progressive, had the strongest, most awful NDA um, policy on his campaign that I've ever seen. I mean, disgraceful. Uh, Donald Trump, too. Uh I mean, the two of them had virtually identical NDA um, requirements. So it's not a it's not a partisan issue. There are people who support it on both sides. There are people who oppose it on both sides. In Massachusetts, the Republican governor and the Democratic Speaker of the House both oppose even letting the taxpayers know what their money is being spent on when they settle these kinds of harassment complaints. So again, you don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat because the the the, the truth of the matter is nobody asks you which party you belong to when they choose to harass you, right? Exactly. There are people who are great on this issue on both sides of the aisle. There are people who are awful. This is a completely apolitical issue in the sense that it's political, in the sense that it gets hopefully addressed through the political process. Um, But it's apolitical in the sense that there are people on both sides of the aisle who do this kind of thing, and it should not be ascribed to one party or another. I agree. So that is what... Is that is policy that is making me salty on the hypocrisy side? I'm so glad you asked. I think this is an important question that we can move forward and ask other guests. Your answer has completely, I've learned probably five bullet points from your answer. And that was really interesting. Um, so what are you looking forward to in the upcoming weeks? Well, first, I'm looking forward to hopefully my dad getting okay. better. <laughs> all positive energy to your dad. That's, yeah, so please send positive vibes. Um, I'm very much looking forward to him getting back on his feet, literally um, and figuratively. Um, I am looking forward to, I guess I'm looking forward to a lot more of my little guy's soccer games. We were at an all-weekend tournament out by Coney Island uh, in the pouring rain, I might add. This past weekend, his team came in second, which is nice. Um Although being my son, his immediate response was, it's not nice. It's not first, <laughs> which I was like, that's my boy. Yes. <laughs> and I've become one of those crazy soccer moms who like actually gets really into her kids games and gets really ticked off at the ref if they're not refereeing adequately, which not verbally because I'm not crazy enough to do that. But I can't believe I've become one of those people, but I've become one of those people. Okay. Um, and uh, nothing. Life is good. Listen, you have, you have hiccups. You have hiccups. Like I just obviously my family had this past week, but life is good. Um, I feel like we're making a tremendous amount of progress on, on Lift Our Voices, which you know is, is just not just a passion project for for me, but really has become a mission. We just hired a great executive director, which I'm so pleased about after a very exhaustive search. Um, so I'm very very happy that she's uh, about to come on board next month. And um, things are great. Looking forward to finishing out 2021 strong. How about you? Yes. Well, this weekend I am with one of my friends is training for the New York City Marathon. And I'm running a 5K with her down at the Bronx. It's like 
to, you know, support or against domestic violence. So it's a 5k for that. So I'm really excited. And then afterwards we're going to the West side highway and running like all the way down it and doing like a really long run. So, so can I just brag about you? (laughs) You and I had breakfast last week and you did, is it orange theory? Yes. First of all, people don't know this because obviously they don't see you, but you are so buff right now. It's crazy. Like your arms are just, you have, you have like Michelle Obama arms, which as you know, is something that I've aspired to, but that would require going to the gym to accomplish. Um, so I kind of fantasize about it, but don't actually do anything to achieve it. But you have, and you look fantastic, but you did this crazy orange theory class. And then with a backpack on your back, which was in Midtown, I believe, right? You yeah. ran up to meet me on the Upper West Side, which for people who don't know is not close. So after you did this incredible grueling class, you still ran it like three or four miles up to me, which is insane and amazing. And I'm so proud of you for doing that. And I'm kind of vicariously living through you because I don't think I can run from here to my bedroom right now as I sit in my living room. <laughs> so I think it's fantastic. And I think Thank it's fantastic you. that you're doing a 5K and then you're still running another time. <laughs> So from the Bronx down to where the battery, are you running the entire yeah. length? Oh, I'm going to go kind of halfway. I'm going, I'm going to 30th street and she's going all the way down to the battery, but I'm like, I will at least start it with you. Wow. So she's going to be doing at least 15 more miles. Yeah. It's her Great. long run. I think it's her 18 mile day. So I'll do like about three quarters of that with her. That's insane. Yeah. So well, I couldn't even do one mile. So I'm super proud of you. We still have one in the books to do, though. Me? Yeah, I have to. I did promise you 5K, so I have to actually um, train for that, which, as we know, I'm I'm not doing anything to accomplish anytime soon, but I but I will. On paper, I'm absolutely doing it. <laughs> awesome. Um, so that's it. That's what's going on. Um, it was so great catching up with you. Back at you. We'll do this again soon, and I'm excited.